Father, may that be our prayer, to know you more. Jesus, it's all about you. As we sang, the way we glorify your name, may it be all about you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. I pray that you will open up our hearts, that you will open up our, our spirits by the power of the Holy Spirit to receive what you have for us this morning. God, as we come with a desire to know you, I pray that we will know you more after this morning. God, that as we open up the word, it will not just be for education, but it will be for transformation because your word is powerful, effective, and transformative. We pray you'll be with us now. Use my words and the meditations of our hearts to glorify your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to see you all here with us this beautiful day. It's not snowing. There's no ice. It's a little bit cold, but I'm happy, right? I'm happy. It's not dangerous out there, and I am glad to see you all here with us this morning. We're going to continue in our series on the book of John, but before we do, I just want to say that Jan Jones, her mom, passed away this week. And so if you can keep Jan and her family in your prayers, there is a funeral in Dubois uh, today at 4 o'clock. And I know Candy Deemer has that information, so if you would like to find that information, the exact um, location of where that will be, please connect with Candy and she will direct you that way. We're going to continue in the book of John. I don't know if you have, have sensed this, but I, I love the book of John. And hopefully my excitement has kind of crossed over to bringing excitement to your life as we come to the book of John. You wait and, and with eager anticipation to see what is God up to in this book? What is God saying? What is he saying to our church? What is he saying to us as individuals? Because I, I just love this book of John. Now, we're going to be looking at the wedding in Cana. And sadly, what happens with this particular story is there's a constant question of is the wine alcoholic or not? Well, we're not going to deal with that issue. So just take that out of your mind because we're going to deal with the actual story of what is Jesus saying. We're not going to get stuck on really weird rabbit trails that can hinder us hearing what God is saying. So don't even ask that question as we come to this story because we're going to be talking about the source of joy, the source of joy. And since it's a wedding, I wanted to just talk about my wedding day for a moment. There's a picture up there that we're going to put. That's, hopefully you can see it. That is my wedding day with my beautiful bride. Now, I remember this day vividly. I remember as, as the, the eager anticipation of the ceremony was coming and the nervousness that was there and the silliness of just being giddy and, and just geeking out about this wonderful, beautiful day. And I remember standing up there, getting up there with my groomsmen and the pastor, and there was this eager anticipation to see my wonderful future bride who would be my bride in a moment. And I remember as they opened the doors, I saw my beautiful wife coming down the aisle. And I had just this sense of joy, of excitement, of anticipation that this woman, I have no idea why, but she said yes to me and is saying, I will give my entire life to you. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? But don't run away yet. <laughs> you just come on down. And she came down and just the, the beautiful joy that I had, I 
love my wife. If there's anything that you need to know in life, it's I love Jesus and I love my wife, all right? Those are two things that you just need to understand. And I'll, I'll talk about my family and my wife a lot because I'm just so joyful and encouraged by my family. You see, joy is one of those things that you can even have when it's not a happy time. Joy is one of those things that is a constant reality that we can have in our lives. And I would say that each and every one of us in this room would love to have joy. And maybe you can remember those moments of life in your joy, maybe or those moments of joy in your life. Maybe it was your wedding day or the first day you held your child or whatever it is. I know that we've had moments of joy. Each and every one of us have had moments of joy in our lives. But we can't make those things the source of joy. No matter how good your marriage is, no matter how great your family is, no matter how wonderful your job is, whatever it is that brings you joy, it's not always going to bring you joy. There'll be tough moments where you're like, I'm really not joyful right now. And I'm sure my wife looks at me many times, I'm not joyful to be your wife right now. I'm glad and I'm stuck with you, but I'm, a little, I'm just not joyful right? But there's those moments that we have in life where the joy does fleet and it goes away. And we cannot find our joy in things that will f just flitter away. We need to go to the source of joy. And I believe that Jesus is the source of joy. Jesus is the source of joy. And we're going to see that in this story of the wedding at Cana, that Jesus is the source of joy. Because all those other things, like I said, that we try to put our joy in, they will eventually bring us pain. They will not always be joyful, but Jesus is the source of our joy. And so we're going to be looking at how we can make Jesus the source of joy. There are several different places that you could go with this passage. You could preach on this one passage for three or four weeks at a time because there's just so much rich content. But I'm going to look at it from the lens of joy and understanding that Jesus is our joy. So the question that we're going to ask today is how do we find our joy in Jesus? How do we find our joy in Jesus? If you would open up your scriptures with me to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, they will also be on the screen so you can follow along. But if you want to look in the Bible, it's John 2, 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that, now become, that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there 
for a few days. And you're probably wondering, what does this story have to deal with joy? And we're going to get there. But first, let's understand the idea of weddings. Weddings in this time were big deals. It was a covenant. And in the Jewish society, a covenant was something that you took very seriously. It wasn't something small. It wasn't something not extravagant. A wedding lasted for a week or sometimes two weeks, depending on the wealth of the family. And the, the bride and the groom would be paraded around town. They would be celebrated. They'd be picked up on chairs. And everyone would be be clapping and cheering and it was just a time of feasting and excitement. I mean breakfast, lunch and dinner. There was feasting and celebrations and they were just so excited about this covenant that had been made. Now I don't know if you would want your wedding to last a whole week long or all the money that would cost that. It's just, it's just astronomical to think about but this was the celebration. There was excitement. There was passion and one of the things that was there with the breakfast, lunch and dinner celebration was wine. And we come to this place of seeing this story. Why in the world is Mary, the mother of Jesus, so worried about the wine at this wedding? I'll just give you a little bit of background so we can understand the framework of what's happening. If Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus, along with his disciples, were invited to this particular wedding, that would mean most likely that there was a familial connection that this was either a cousin or some type of nephew of Mary's or who, whatever it is, there's a familial connection. And when a woman was connected to the marriage familially, she would have to try and help serve the food and serve the wine. And so she's there and she's looking at this moment and she's saying, oh man, we're running out of wine. This is not a good sign. Because if the wine ran out, there would be extreme embarrassment. It would put shame upon the family because they weren't wealthy enough or they didn't celebrate enough. So you're wondering, why is Mary concerned? That's why she was concerned. So you have that framework in mind. This was most likely a relative of Jesus, and that's important for us to understand why she was highly involved. But before we discuss the wedding and this idea of joy and what, it, what it's defining in this story, I want us to look at the wedding, uh, the, the wedding itself and the groom and the bride and how they, it says, invited Jesus along with his disciples. I believe this is important because for us to find our joy in Jesus, we must invite Jesus to join every part of our journey. We must invite Jesus to join every part of our journey. This couple invited Jesus to their wedding, and Jesus went. He blessed the wedding with his presence. He came and he brought his disciples and he, welcomed, they, he was welcomed, welcomed into this wonderful week-long celebration. Jesus joined the journey. You and I, we have a journey. Our life is a journey. Our marriage is a journey. Our jobs are part of our journey. Where we spend our money and what we, what we receive in the house and, and wherever we live, we have that as a part of our journey. And Jesus desires to be a part of every portion of our journey. And this beautiful couple who invited Jesus in to bring joy to the wedding, they didn't know who he was necessarily, but they invited him into this moment of their life, this moment of their journey. And for you and I to find joy in our life, we need to be inviting Jesus into every aspect of our journey. You see, we look at this story, <coughs> excuse me, and we see the one thing about Jesus is that if we invite him, he will come. Revelation says this, 
Revelation 3.20 reminds us that if we welcome Jesus in, if we invite him, he will come. And in that passage in Revelation 3, it's this word dipnon. It's one of my favorite words, and I know I talk about it a lot, and Brian, he loves this word now too. Dipnon is this long, lingering meal. It says if you invite Jesus in, he will stay. And in the Greek, the word dipnon, it means long, lingering, lasting meal. And so if we invite Jesus into our journey, he will come. Now here's something that I'm going to say that might step on toes a little bit. I would venture to say that the areas of your journey that feel joyless, it's probably because Jesus isn't a part of it. And so if your marriage seems joyless, you've probably not invited Jesus into it. If your job seems joyless, you've probably not invited Jesus into it. If your family feels joyless, it's probably because you've not invited Jesus into it. Because Jesus is the source of all joy. We must invite Jesus to join every part of our journey. And so as you think about that, ask yourself the question, where do I feel joyless? What areas of my life feel joyless? We can discern quickly where Jesus is not asking that question. Once John establishes the what and the where, he moves the reader immediately to the main thrust of the story, which is the wine. And I think as we look at verse 3, we can recognize that the world's joy always runs out. The world's joy always runs out. Now we're finally understanding why joy is important. Joy was symbolized by wine. Wine symbolized joy in the Jewish culture. We can see this in the book of Judges, not in verse, chapter 9, verse 13. And it says this, But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? He's talking about the cheerfulness that wine brings to a party, to a time, to a family, to a connection, to a meal. Wine was always established as a piece of joy. And so essentially, Mary is so concerned about the wine running out at this wedding because it would symbolize that joy has run out, that the joy in the celebration can no longer happen, that there's this fear, that there's shame. And and in fact, some commentators said that if the wine ran out before the wedding was done, they could be fined, financially fined, for not having enough wine. I think that's bananas to me. I don't understand that. Right, But there's this sense of the joy would be gone if the wine runs out. What does that tell us? The world's joy will always run out. Truthfully, if you look at anything in life that you've tried to get joy from, it runs out. It cannot last. It will not remain. But joy from Jesus will never go away. It will never go away. So are you trying to find your joy outside of Jesus? Because if you are, it will always run out, just like the wine at this wedding. And it is serious business when the joy of our life wanes down to emptiness because we feel like, why would I even live now? There's this, I feel joyless. I don't wake up wanting to live. I wake up just, ugh. And maybe you've felt that several times in your life. Maybe you're feeling that right now. My challenge would be to invite Jesus into those areas of your journey. 
Invite him to join those parts of your journey to bring joy to your life. Do not try to find joy from the world or anyone or anything else because it will always, always, always run out. Many commentators would agree that John was most likely using this story to leverage the emptiness of Judaism, the emptiness of the world's religion. And he's saying, listen, nothing will bring you joy. The religious life that you're trying to live, eventually you're going to be joyless in it. And many of the Pharisees, although they pretended to be the greatest of all religious people, they didn't walk around with joy. In fact, they were so joyless that they made other people feel joyless. Someone was healed, if you were looking in the the book of Luke from our 91 weeks, there's a man with a shriveled hand that was healed. And these guys, they're like, okay, how can we arrest this guy? Because that's What what is that? He did it on the Sabbath. That doesn't bring joy. They're walking around, stop healing people. I don't care if you're healed. Just That's wrong. How happy is that? How joyful is that? Wow, I want to hang out with that guy. Woo. You see, but he was saying everything is joyless. Everything will get empty unless Jesus is involved. Unless Jesus steps in and does something about the joylessness that we experience, the world's joy will always run out. Kostenberger, one of my favorite commentators on the book of John, he says that this was also a prophetic expectation because prophetic expectation casts the messianic age as a time when wine would flow freely. He's saying, listen, not only was this a moment of of John, the the writer, explaining the the emptiness of Judaism, but he was also saying this is a messianic thing. He chose this story on purpose. If you read the end of the book of John, it says specifically, if I were to write down everything Jesus did, there'd be so many books you couldn't handle it. So why would he focus on this particular story? I believe one of it, too, was to establish the messianic promise that Jesus brought. And the messianic promise that Jesus brought to the people of Israel was something to be joyful about. They were excited. They were eagerly anticipating the Messiah coming. And so it was this symbol of joy in many different facets of the Jewish life. And so it's important that we try to dig deep into what is actually happening. This was a sense of joy. It was exciting. But we also see other portions of how to invite Jesus into being our joy. How can Jesus be our joy? I think the next thing that we can see from verses 4 through 5 is that confident faith knows Jesus will bring joy. Confident faith knows that Jesus will bring joy. Check it out. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she comes up to him. And she knows that he can do something about this situation. She says specifically to him, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, that's not just a statement, right? I mean, moms don't just make statements. There's also a question underneath it, right? There's this, hey, there's no wine. The question behind that is, do something about it, please, right? It's like the mom comes in, your room is dirty. She's actually saying, clean the room, son, Right? You know, all the moms in the room, you're nodding your heads, you understand? So it's like the wine has run out. She had confident faith that he could do something about it. She knew that her son, now some people say, well, he's never done a miracle. You know, if you look later in the Bible, Mary Mary questions his, his ability to be the Messiah and all these different things. That's true, but that was a moment of doubt in her life. But if you look at the book of Luke, 
all the things that happened when she experienced and, and when she met Ananias and, and, uh, and, and saw no, Anna, sorry, Anna at the temple and she met Simeon and they were praying and speaking over Jesus. It says that she pondered these things in her heart. She knew he could do something about it. He had never done anything, but she knew he could because she remembered the promise. She remembered the things that were said about him at birth and she had those in her heart so she knew she had confident faith that he could do something. Now, many people, when they come to this passage, they assume a couple of things. The first thing that they assume is that Jesus is really rude to his mom, right? I mean, because in today's day and age, if your mom was like, hey, clean your room, and I was like, woman, I wouldn't go over very well. <laughs> Sons, daughters, men, do not say woman to your wife or to your husband, or uh, your mom, sorry. Anyways, don't say that. And order your husband because you don't want to call your husband a woman. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. I apologize. <laughs> we, we look at that and we say, man, that's really rude. Why would he say that to his mom? Well, that was kind of a natural thing. It wasn't, wasn't this frustrated, I'm angry at you. He was just saying, woman, why are you involving me in this? And the next thing that we see is that we make this assumption that Jesus is telling her no. Because he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. She's saying, do something, because I know you can do something about it. And we see it kind of like he's saying no, but what he's saying is not no. In fact, if you were to dig into this conversation, Mary's expecting him to do something publicly. She wants him to do something in front of everybody about it, right? Who knows what it was that she had in her mind for him to do? I can't even imagine what she was thinking at the time. But she wanted him to do something publicly. And he's like, listen, my time has not yet come. I'm not supposed to be doing things in public. It's not time yet. So he wasn't saying no. He was saying that portion of what I do is not ready to happen. In fact, one commentator says, in the present, in the present instance, Jesus does not want to be forced to a public manifestation of his identity on another's terms. He doesn't want to have a public display. But yet he does something. He does something about it. And here's another thing that we can see about Jesus, is that Jesus answers in his time and in his way. In his time and in his way. Mary had an expectation when she was coming to Jesus. She had an agenda as to what it would look like. She said, please, here you go, do this thing. But even when Jesus says, it's not my time, you might think that Mary completely ignored everything Jesus said, right? Because all of a sudden, she she turns to the servants and says, do what he says. You look at that and you say, did she not understand what he was saying? Did she not get it? You see, but what this shows us is that even though Jesus wasn't going to do it the way she wanted him to do it, she still knew he would and put it in his hands. That's confident faith. Do you and I, when we come to the Lord and pray and ask him to do something, do we have a specific agenda? We want a specific outcome. And if Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do it the way I, you want me to do it, do we just then stop praying? Or do we continue? Do we continue to say, I don't care how you answer it. I, you do it your way. But here is my prayer. I lay it before you. Do what you will. Those are really hard prayers to pray. Because if we're honest, we always have an expectation about how and when we want Jesus to answer our prayers. And we could go on for a year or two and say, he's still not answering my prayer. What's wrong with you? You do not hear me? But he might have answered it all along the way. 
There's a guy named George Mueller. We've been talking about it in staff meeting a lot because Phil's been reading the book, George Mueller's autobiography or his biography. And what's intense about this story about George Mueller is that for 45 plus years, he prayed for three of his friends to come to know Jesus Christ. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And near the end of his life, two of the three came to know Jesus. But he continued to pray for the third friend until he passed away. And at his funeral, the third friend came to Jesus. Don't you think George Mueller would have been like, I want to see this happen before I die? Don't you think as he was dying, he might have been a little bit frustrated with God for not doing this in his lifetime? But he kept praying in faith, knowing that Jesus would answer. He was going to answer in his way and in his time. Confident faith leaves it in the hands of Jesus and doesn't try to control it. Faith moves the heart of God, but God will often surprise us with his time and his way when it comes to the answer. So we need to come to prayer. I've said this phrase many times, with expectation, but without an agenda. May we expect God to answer. May we have that confident faith. Because when we're confident in faith that Jesus will bring joy, man, he's going to bring it. Let's invite him. It might not look the way we want it to look. It might not come the way we want it to come. But joy is coming. Let's invite Jesus into every part of our journey. Another thing that we can see that is often overlooked in this passage is this reality that when Jesus tells these servants to do something, they do it. Now, some people believe that these these servants were the disciples. Some believe that they were completely separate from the disciples and were just servants around the household. But either way, they obey what Jesus said. Jesus answers in his time, but the joy of partnering with Jesus is found in obedience. The joy of partnering with Jesus is found in obedience. Mary tells these servants, go do it. And here's the greatest thing. They actually got to partner with Jesus in his first miracle. Could you imagine that they find out that this guy's the Messiah, no matter whether they were the disciples or just servants around the house, but later on they find out that this Jesus that they partnered with, he's actually the Messiah. He's the king. He's God in the flesh. Man, could you imagine the joy that they had? They were like, you know that first thing he did? I was there. I listened. I obeyed. I poured water into this thing. Didn't make any sense. He said, do it. Mary said, trust him. We trusted him. We did it. And we actually partnered with Jesus. Listen, you and I have the same opportunity to partner with Jesus. It just takes obedience. When he calls us to something, when he calls us into something, when he says, I have a call on your life, I want you to go after this, I want you to go after this, I want you to move here, I want you to change this, I want you to put water in jugs, and it doesn't make any sense. But when we obey him and we partner with him, just the joy is so incredible. I love what I do because I'm filled with joy because I get to do this. You guys see me as hyper and crazy and I bounce around and that's because I'm so in love with Jesus and the fact that I get to do what I'm doing, it brings joy. I love it. Is that how you feel about where you're working? Is that how you feel about your marriage? If not, invite him in because he wants to bring joy and obey when he calls you to something. Go after it because your joy will be complete. Invite him in and then obey those servants often get forgotten that they actually obeyed. Would it make any sense 
They were standing there when she said, there's no wine, and he's like, go get some water. I would have no idea why he would say that, but he did. They were partnering with Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. You and I can be used in the same way. Jesus then answers Mary's request by making an abundance of wine. In this, we can see another answer to how we can find joy in Jesus, and that's understanding that Jesus is not only the source, but the sustainer of joy. Jesus is not only the source, but he's the sustainer of joy. Think about this. This was over 150 gallons of wine that he just put together. These jars, they were used for ceremonial purification. They were probably for people to wash their hands or wash the utensils. And he's like, look, those empty things, go fill them up with water. 150 gallons. This would sustain a wedding for another week. This was a lot, a lot of wine in overabundance. And what he's saying is, not only will I answer your prayer, but it will be extravagant. It will be in abundance. It will blow your mind how I will provide for joy because I will sustain your joy. I'm not just the source. You don't just come to me to get joy, like a shot of joy in your arm. But if we continue in obedience, if we continue inviting Jesus into every aspect of our life, our joy will be sustained. That doesn't mean that pain and suffering won't happen. We can have joy in the midst of suffering, as James and 1 Peter tell us. That we can have joy when pain comes because Jesus is the sustainer of joy. Joy is not based on circumstances. That's happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. You can be happy or unhappy. But when we invite Jesus to join us in every aspect of our journey, we can have joy that is sustainable. Jesus sustained the joy of this wedding. Because remember, wine was a symbol of joy. <laughs> Jesus is not only the source but also the sustainer of joy. Warren Wearsby, I love this quote. He says, in this miracle, our Lord brought fullness where there was emptiness and joy where there was disappointment. There was emptiness in those jars and in the, in the jars of wine. There was joylessness that was about to happen, but Jesus filled it up and there was gonna be disappointment and so we come to the next point, point number eight. Jesus brings fullness to our emptiness and joy where there is disappointment. He brings fullness to our emptiness. Are there empty areas of your life? Those areas of joylessness, those areas of pain where you've allowed it to squelch the joy of the Lord within you. Are there disappointments that are in your life? I would say every one of us in this room has disappointments. You might be very disappointed in a specific thing that's happening right now in your life. I don't know your specific situation, but I do know that there is disappointment somewhere in your life. Jesus can bring joy to that disappointment. He can bring fullness to the areas that are empty in our lives. Are we inviting him in to those places? Or are we trying to find joy in other areas? Remember, the joy of the world will always run out. This story is a beautiful picture for us to capture the importance of Jesus welcomed in and the bringer and the source and the sustainer of our joy. Jesus brings fullness to our emptiness and joy to our disappointment. I don't know how I can say that any better. But my prayer is that you'll embrace that truth. That you'll embrace that truth. And just like Revelation 3.20 says, invite Jesus in because he'll come. 
Invite Jesus into those empty areas and those disappointments in your life because he will come. Next thing we can see in this story, it gives us a whole lot of stuff. This story is, it seems like just a quick little narrative, but there is so much meat in this. The next thing that we can see is that the joy of Jesus is extravagant. The joy of Jesus is extravagant. It's not just little. It's not just a little shot in the arm like we talked about, but it's extravagant. Look at verse 10. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He didn't just make wine that would sustain the rest of the wedding. He didn't just make 150 gallons of wine. He made the best stuff that anybody there had tasted. He brought better than the best, which means Jesus will always bring better than the best that humanity can bring. Always. You might think, wow, this is pretty cool. This is, this is the best thing I've ever had. Well, try Jesus because it's going to be a whole lot better. He brings better to our best. We could never top the extravagance of the joy of Jesus. That's why the disciples, when they wrote in John and 1 Peter and James, that, that we could have joy in suffering, it seems ridiculous. 1 Peter, that book was written to a, a group of Christians who were being murdered for their Christianity. Nero was lighting the streets with their bodies on crosses. He, they were being martyred left and right. And he's like, your joy can be complete in suffering. You can have joy dying for the Lord. Well, in today's world, we're like, what? That doesn't even make sense. How, what are you even saying? We look at that, and as Americans, we don't really suffer a whole lot. And so we're like, oh, man, when I have a hangnail, that's just, I'm suffering, right? Or, man, I lost my job, I'm suffering. Well, you're not dying for your faith. You don't have to fear every time you come into this building that you could be annihilated or shot or killed or burnt to, at a cross. We don't have that fear. But this church did in 1 Peter. They had that fear. And Peter said to them, you can have joy in suffering because the joy of Jesus is extravagant. It's better than anything we could ever imagine. The joy of Jesus is extravagant. The next thing that we can see is making Jesus our joy. Look at verses <coughs> excuse me, 11 through 12. The first sign, this, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The next thing that we can see is that the supernatural strengthens our faith. The supernatural strengthens our faith. We talked about, we used that word last week, supernatural. It happens all through the book of John. A ton of miracles that are recorded over and over and over again. We see Jesus doing the supernatural. And many times the response is belief. Here are the disciples, they were already following Jesus. And as we saw last week, they were believing that he was the epitome of the Messiah. That he was the one that they needed to follow. But here they see this spectacular thing. And they believe even more. Another reason why I believe that John put this first in the, in the miracles, why he put this story as number one, is A, because chronologically it most likely was number one, but also because I believe that John's faith was so boosted that this is when he began to attach himself to Jesus in a real way. And we'll see that he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He was a disciple that would lay his head on the chest of Jesus. This is where he said, I'm all in. This is it. 
You see, not many people saw this miracle. Very few did. The servants, the disciples, and Mary. They're the only ones that knew where the wine had come from. But their belief was strengthened by the supernatural. Is the supernatural happening in our lives? I believe it is. I know that many of you have had sickness that God has healed. I know that there's someone in this room that has struggled for a long time and the prayers of believers have, have been bathed over them. And they're here because of prayers, because the supernatural work of our God. And it boosts our faith. When we see God move, when we see God work, it boosts our faith. The supernatural strengthens our faith. The disciples knew what had happened and it brought belief. <coughs> Excuse me. Finally, as we conclude this understanding of his joy, I want to challenge us with this one thing. Invite Jesus into your emptiness. Invite Jesus into your disappointments. We see this story that seems hard to follow. It seems hard to understand, but it's all about Jesus. It's all about the joy and the power and the love and the extravagance that Jesus brings to our life. Those areas that are joyless, let him bring the joy because Jesus is the source of all joy. Capture that, own that, understand it, and invite him in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. Jesus, I thank you that you bring joy to our joylessness. That the disappointments in life and the suffering and the pain in life don't have to end in joylessness, but you can bring joy. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that right now, as we are talking about this area of joy and the areas of joylessness, I pray that you'll speak to everyone in this room, myself included, where the joyless areas of our life, we can invite you into them. Show us where those joyless areas are so that we no longer have to live joyless in those areas. Father, bring joy to marriages. Bring joy to families. Bring joy to jobs. Bring joy because you are the source and the sustainer of our joy. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.